The Poseidon Adventure kicks off our 70s disaster season with a Gene Hackman-led capsized ship on New Year's Eve. Let's see if this practical effects blockbuster still delivers spectacle in a modern CGI-dominated world. Welcome everyone to the Collector's Cut. I am Peter and joining me as always is David. Don't worry, Mr. Peter. I once helped my dad pull in a 600-pound swordfish in Hawaii. This is a movie podcast. We get together and we talk about a movie. In fact, we work through seasons of movies, which will often be a franchise. It might be a batch of movies, best same actor or director. Or in this case, we're working through a subgenre. So this is actually the start of our 70s disaster movie season. Uh, it's not every 70s disaster movie. In fact, they kind of neatly split into half uh, for, for the sake of how long we wanted this to be. So I also don't think that that's every disaster movie, but... All the ones good... that are probably worth... There was a lot of TV movies that that's I was ignoring. But yeah, so this is going to be about half of the 70s disaster movies uh, over the next five weeks, plus as a bonus episode on Patreon, which is very relevant to the one we're doing today. Uh, yes. So not all the big ones are in this season because we wanted to distribute the, the big titles evenly between the two seasons. So season two will mm -hmm. come... Yeah, maybe sometime later in 2023, maybe maybe a bit later than that, depending on how the schedule is looking. It's pretty packed at the moment. The schedule the is full to burst. Yes. But uh, yes, so we're starting with one of the biggest titles of the 70s disaster subgenre, and that is the Poseidon Adventure, starting with a bang, uh, or a wave, uh, <laughs> you might say. Uh, so... Yes, this is the, the Capsizing Ship movie starring Gene Hackman. We'll get into who else is in it in a bit. Uh, but this is uh, very much our first. Obviously, disaster movie can mean a number of things. It can... Typically, you'll think of it as either some sort of natural disaster or some kind of crisis in a structure or vessel. Or, you know, it could be a building, obviously, towering infernos. Not one we're doing this season, but is also but also one of the most famous examples of a 70s disaster movie. Uh this is a, a ship capsizing because of a tidal wave uh, mm -hmm. movie. So uh, that's what we're going to get into. We'll start spoiler-free, as we always do. We'll give you a warning before we get to spoilers. Uh, but the main gist of it is basically the one-sentence premise I already gave you, but we have Gene Hackman as kind of like a hard-hitting, like... The hard-boiled preacher. Yeah. I think the official title in the movie was Reverend. I think they'd call him a reverend at one point. True. So... Yes. He is asked to lead the survivors after the capsize happens. And as with any disaster movie, and that's one of the interesting things, I think, about going through a batch of these in succession, is we're mm -hmm. going to see some of the, the things that connect them, even when it's a very different crisis. Uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, coming up, we're going to have, like, uh, you know, outbreaks of virus. We're going to have fires. We're going to have uh, other types of disaster. But one of the things that sort of connects them all, I think, from what I know of the ones that I've seen so far, is sort of the ensemble cast of like various memorable characters so that we can follow yeah. a group of people going through the crisis. So we'll get into who those characters are in just a bit, but that's uh, pretty much it. But yeah, it's a group of characters trying to survive and find their way through an upside down ship. That, that's the yeah, that's the movie. That's all it is. Long story short. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. I think I'd also boil down disaster movies in general to once you've set up what the disaster is, it's effectively the characters trying to survive a series of set pieces where... There's an obstacle. How do we get past this obstacle? It's risky. Someone might die going through the said obstacle and then on to the next obstacle. 
And then yeah. by the time you get to the end, you're hoping that you've felt that you've went through an adventure. If it's been a good disaster movie, you'll feel like, oh, that was a journey. Getting to this point. Yeah, I mean, obviously you'll have the variables in there of, like, each character's role adding their own sets of problems and their mm. own solutions to problems. But boilerplate-wise, yeah, it is literally just how many trials can we get through that relate to this particular thing? Yeah. Uh, and then perhaps on a quality perspective, like, do they all feel believable enough as, as set pieces go? Do they all mm. feel like realistic enough dangers that they can either live through or even just is, is the predicament itself realistic that it would happen in this crisis kind mm. of thing? Uh, by and large, I would say that disaster movies aren't inherently realistic because they're entertainment and they want to be exciting. So, I mean, I've seen, I think that there are disasters themselves that are realistically portrayed, but coming out of there's a hero leading a band of survivors. Oh, sure. Yeah, that part's a little bit more unrealistic. I, just, I always assume that anyone who is an expert, and in this case, maybe ships, you know, being. Oh, yeah overturned or whatever like, i mean i would i would say that uh even the tidal wave itself because i i may be completely wrong on this sure. but i remember hearing that the 2004 tsunami that hit was kind of like the first tsunami that was actually like filmed the first one that there was a lot of you know oh, okay. study of what right. it looked like and that's where people got tidal wave from because when people were describing it they were like it was just this huge wave and we know what that actually means now is not tall, but just like an unrelenting surge forward. Mm. So in this case, I think that the unrealistic comes from the fact that it's a 90 foot tall single wave rather than just a giant shelf of water moving in. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, as it's, 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 it happens a lot with space movies, but obviously anyone who works at NASA will watch a movie set in space and oh, just absolutely. laugh at every little thing that's just nonsense. I feel like these movies are probably quite similar in that anyone who knows anything about you know, certain topics, in this case it's mm -hmm. you know, a ship or how water works or the different areas of a ship and where the access mm -hmm. points are. I mean, hell, we notice it in regular movies. I remember, you know, as part of a Patreon thing, uh, and I'm sure some of you will eventually do for one you know, subject or another, but speed... The fact that there's like three mm. different access panels in the bottom of this bus. And I'm like, I've been on many buses and I have never seen a panel on the floor that opens to like get to the underside of the bus ever in my life. So uh, clearly I, you've never been on an American bus because they're everywhere. That's, that's true. I've never been on a bus in Los Angeles. So I, I, yep. I can't say for sure if it's inaccurate, but it felt pretty inaccurate. Uh, but, you know, but yeah, I think... If you're going to enjoy disaster movies, I think you have to get into it and just sort of like go along oh, yeah. for the ride. Uh, ultimately, if you want to nitpick the believability of any of the situations, uh, you're pro they're probably not for you. If it's going to bother yeah. you, they're not for you. <laughs> there's also there's also a thing in disaster movies, and this one kind of falls prey to it, of how sentient does the disaster seem? <laughs> like how much is it literally hunting down our survivors and making sure they pay that i will say there's one moment in this which i won't spoil yet because we're in spoiler free mm. where the timing of it happening is so comical how quickly it is after oh, a yeah. certain thing. i know exactly yeah. which one you're talking about and i i i, I started chuckling a little bit like, a really movie we're doing it right away like mm -hmm. but you know just, yes whatever i mean that's i want to say this may be considered the 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 the, the, the the, the first one or well, the first big successful disaster movie this because this is fair. 1972 mm. 
I think this is the one that kind of inspired. Maybe, maybe it was Airport. Maybe it was Airport. I don't know. I'd have to check. Airport was 1970. Okay, so Airport was first. So Airport mm-hmm. kicked off. It's literally the first year of the decade as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's. And we're not doing Airport because there's actually enough of those on its own to just be its own trilogy. Plus, yep. you know, if you throw an airplane as a sort of extra to that, then you get like a whole franchise out of it. Um, so. There is a sequel to this. Good time to mention this. That our bonus yes. episode on Patreon this month is going to be Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, the sequel starring Michael Caine, which I, I didn't know he was in it until I looked like 10 minutes ago. I didn't know it until you just told me that. Yeah. So Michael Caine's in there and a couple of other... Peter Boyle, who we just saw in the Santa Claus movies, is in it. So Everything exciting. just ties together here. I know. It's beautiful. Uh, so that's going to be the bonus episode. If you want to get access to that, uh, all tiers on Patreon uh, get access mm. to that. And that'll be going up. If all goes to plan, it'll be up the same day this goes public. So go and check that out on Patreon. So, okay, uh, cool stuff. Uh, but yeah, so we're just our characters uh, in the film. But uh, before we get mm-hmm. to actually all those details, I should probably just ask the question: David, did yes. you enjoy the Poseidon Adventure? In fact, actually, additional question before you even answer mm-hmm. that: Had you seen the Poseidon Adventure before this? Uh, no, I have not seen it beforehand. And in terms of do I like it? Yes. It's not, I'm not going to put many strings on that. I think that it was just an enjoyable enough movie. I do find myself lacking in experience of pretty much every movie we're going to watch. I, I don't, I'm not very experienced in 70s disaster movies specifically, or even really good disaster movies <laughs> I'll say. Cause obviously, you know, I was growing, I was a teenager when we got, 2012 and stuff like that like the the long string of just horrible disaster movies that came oh, out sure. in the late 2000s i've seen those i mean but I, to see it no my, god my, my exposure to them was probably the night because 90s had like, its own era of disaster movies true and yeah. i feel like that's an obvious season to do at some point as the 90s because that's that's where you've got volcano and danny's peak mm-hmm. you've got daylight you've got um twisters i don't you know another big famous one i mean i'll go ahead and just put out there uh i had a very protective mother and oh, okay. i did not get to see those movies <laughs> uh so i i sort of grew up in those so i went back and like discovered not all i mean i will say this like i've seen this movie before and i've seen the tower and inferno before mm-hmm and I've seen Earthquake in the first airport, so which are arguably the four biggest of the 70s disaster movies. Yeah, but because, obviously, I went looking for, you know, lesser-known ones to try and have a nice variety of big and small films, um, this is the only one out of this batch of five that I've seen before. Every other one okay. we're doing for the rest of this season are a first-time watch for me, which is kind of fun, because I was like, oh, I want to see what these yeah. are like. See what the rest Perfect. of the variety was of, of sorts. Uh, so... Uh, that's interesting but obviously i think what's interesting though comparing this era of disaster movies to in part the 90s but certainly to what you're talking about the 2012 era the roland emmerich just goes full nuts with emmerich it. that was the name i was looking uh, for yep day there day, day, day after tomorrow all that stuff mm-hmm. um is that the these ones are definitely at least this one is i mean obviously we're getting to some weirder ones later on like we get to the big bus like i don't even know what we're going to say about that but i don't know I would say that this is based a bit more on, like, not necessarily a real event. I mean, it might, but it's, I mean, it claims it is at the start, but I don't actually know if that's true. No, uh, it's based, there was a 1969 book called oh, okay. Adventure. Okay, so, so it's just a novel adaptation. But it's based on something that feels like, okay, this is plausible enough that a, a disaster like this has or could happen, that a boat can capsize, 
and you know like by his towering inferno oh it's a skyscraper that gets set in fire and you know I mean, obviously, there's right. a bit of a shadow over that now because we've actually had, like, a really major disaster in the real... Not the exact same, but 9-11 obviously comes to yeah. mind when you think about that subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but those are very much based on things that seem relatively plausible, whereas you get to, like, 2012 and Day After Tomorrow and it's like, no, there's, like, a wall of ice chasing a character down a hallway yep. kind of thing. Absolutely. So they've gotten more extravagant and, like, very science fiction-y and, like, how they set up the premise it literally comes down to this movie does this slow boil thing over the course of it Mm -hmm. where not every i guess trial not every issue they run into is this whole groundbreaking event of like dear lord how are we ever gonna at one point they just you know the boat's upside down they have to figure out how to get up a staircase and it is literally a ramp like they are able to just walk (laughs) up it but it's just a little bit slippery and some people need some help it's not this oh my god blow your hair back events of how are they going to possibly survive it it's just hey uh let's deal with this and then we got to move on to the next thing it's a a bit more grounded because it's like okay we have a couple of people who are older or overweight like how do we Mm -hmm. get them through this situation even though it is simpler uh the water's starting to rise as the ship's sinking obviously so that's like a, a ticking time clock you know, it doesn't necessarily try to dress it up in the most extreme, ridiculous, like... And in the case of modern movies, like, let's just face it, like, lots of CGI, like, destruction or whatever it does. Literally, all that pops in my head whenever I think of that moment is the scene in 2012 where the ground is literally falling yeah. away as the plane is taking off. And then it's, like, holds on it, and then the plane goes, right up to the camera. It's... And I'm... Because that's all that I think of when I'm like, that was too much. <laughs> that's that's exactly am, the phrase. It's I'm too... out. There's a point where it just beca- it becomes so over the top and ridiculous that it loses all sense of like, like you you can't feel like being in the situation because it's just like so cataclysmic that it feels like it's beyond like the realm of comprehension. Yeah, exactly. Whereas everything in this, well, it might be far fetched to anyone who actually knows the science behind a lot of these things. They mm. still feel relatively okay. Simple problems like there's a solution. Can we get there? Like we're you know like there, there's a enough logic to the events that are happening or at least to feel grounded enough that even yeah. if sometimes there's occasionally like a cheesy movie moment or like a character has to like make a decision that feels like eh, i don't know like it feels like they're being confrontational because the script wants them to be confrontational as opposed to feeling like a natural response to what's happening yeah you know I, inherently though i would say watching poseidon adventure feels a lot more grounded and relatable than when i'm when you know that one time i watched 2012 kind of half-assed and didn't really want to and yeah didn't like it exactly. very much i mean going on what you said of the characters feeling confrontational for the sake of it i think that's also something of just the period mm-hmm. where it almost has not every film obviously but a lot of films have this sort of like stage acting sort of manner to it like oh yeah yeah like the, I specifically noted in the beginning of this film, we're introduced to a uh, married couple, a cop and a, I guess, former prostitute. And there was just one particular scene where they, it's a panning shot. They move from one side of the room over to the other. And it makes sense for the woman, for the wife to walk over there. But the husband stays in perfect frame the entire time walking over and then like just rests his head on the opposite side of the frame when they arrive. And I'm like, that felt like 
someone walked through the blocking and was like, you need to be here and then here and keep this close to her the entire time. Which, and it, it, I'm not mad at that. To be, like, no, I, not it, at all. It makes for a moment, you know, it feels... But it, it, is, it is just one of those things where I feel the structure behind it. Sure, I feel the... Yeah. It's whereas nowadays you get far more, especially with more rapid cuts and stuff like that. This movie hung on a lot of cuts for much longer than any action film nowadays which, would. Which I, th- I like. I think there's parts of this movie that do feel a bit slow paced by today's standards. But I would, mm. I would say that the positives far outweigh the negatives compared to like a modern mm-hmm. action movie, and that I prefer that there's longer cuts. It makes things feel more real. There's definitely a few things it's lacking. Like, um, you know, I don't like this is spoiling it to say that I, I don't think you ever really get a good proper big wide shot of the boat overturned like even at the very end when you see yeah. a little bit of it it, it almost feels like they tried to do it with a miniature probably and decided it didn't look good enough so they just avoided showing it and yeah i can respect that and i understand why they've made that choice but i'm like you know what that's the one benefit you'd have of having like doing this movie now and i know there is a remake which i mean i'm sure we'll get to maybe they like a remake season or something yeah. <laughs> we'll do remakes of movies we've already done uh perfect one, one month but you know, I, I I imagine that one of the benefits of doing a modern version of this would be that oh we can we can just do that big shot that you kind of want at least what like, I I love that they, I would love not showing it till the end I, I think that's actually mm-hmm. a really smart choice is that you never see anything that these characters don't see you never get like the wide perspective really there's a couple of shots of like when there's like uh, explosions happening underneath mm-hmm. with the when the chimneys or whatever that yeah okay they'll show a little bit of a wide shot but by and large if the characters that we're following don't get to see something we're not seeing it either and it keeps us with them and their sort of claustrophobia and like are we ever going to see daylight again are we just screwed are we just going to die in here like yeah i think that that's probably i mean the opening credit sequence is all aerial shots of what i can only assume are a miniature um but then once we get into the ship it basically stays in the ship the whole time except for the odd explosion or something like that but even then, I kind of wish that they would have kept those explosions inside. I, I think that it actually did a disservice to see yeah, specifically fair. where. Because they said, um, long story short, without spoiling anything too much, the entire goal, as they established in the beginning, is to get to the engine room. Uh, that's where they want to be at. And I think to have these explosions going off and then not being able to visually see where they are on the ship is much better of saying like is the engine room still going to be there by the time yeah, that no, we arrive? That's, that's a very good point cause especially since it actually comes up at one point where they're not sure and they have the debate and we won't talk about it just now but uh yeah i think maybe this is a a case of where the limitations of the technology of the time was a benefit to the movie because it kept mm-hmm. these wider shots to a minimum whereas like maybe today because they can whenever they want to cut to a big cg shot of the ship you know right. like Maybe the fact that they're restrained in that way actually benefits this uh, in a number of ways. And I think by and large, like because it does feel more grounded and because it is like people climbing awkwardly up structures that are upside down, and because like, we can all kind of picture these rooms upside down, so it all feels like, okay, I, oh, can, yeah. you know, I can understand the logic to some of this and like why things are where they are mm. uh, for the most part. And you know, water's coming in and like you under, you understand the risk, you understand the threat, you understand there's mm-hmm. a bit of a time element because like, you know, the ship's ultimately going to sink now that it's upside down. Like, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, without spoiling anything, there, the one scene in this movie that just immediately enamored me was uh, there's a young boy character and they all split up at one point and the boy ends up in the men's bathroom 
and he just walks in because obviously he needs to use the restroom. But all the toilets are now up on the ceiling. And it holds for a good like 20 seconds of him just like looking up, trying to figure out how he's going to do this. <laughs> and I thought that was a great scene because it's it doesn't do anything. It's no like music playing. There's no womp womp or anything. You could just feel the kid just being like, huh. All right. All those years of practice peeing up the wall is finally yep. going to come into into play. Uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's it's a good uh, point. I think the crisis stuff is short enough that the idea of worrying about food and water and stuff is not really a concern. It's like you know, it's all yeah. happening in such a short span of time that like, no, this is about getting out and surviving if we can. Mm. And I mean, they do have a conversation at one point talking about trying to find food or water. And I, I, I same point as you. I think that was. It's only been like, at most, two hours maybe. Yeah, even if you stretch it a bit more than that, because obviously that's all happens on the New Year's Eve party. Mm-hmm. You know, they literally have just counted down to midnight when everything kicks off. So it's, uh, you know, you, you have a bit of a context for the time of year. Makes it. A, I mean, I, I've never heard of anyone saying this is a New Year's movie. You should watch it New Year's, but maybe it would work. This <laughs> take set in New Year's. I mean. I don't think, I mean, what would really be a New Year's theme? I don't, I can't imagine anything, I guess, new beginnings, but I don't think that anything in this movie screams new beginnings. Um, you know, ships turned upside down, out with the old. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, old Lang Syne, whatever, moving on. (laughs) There's a whole scene where they're all singing, all that saying, yeah, they do. I guess my, my, question is if it were to be a new year's themed movie something that would feel good to watch around new year's i never promised feeling good what, what, right. what, what did i Fair promise enough. that <laughs> i guess yeah i just inferred that i always want to be able to ring in the new year with death and destruction <laughs> and whatnot look there's a lot of christmas movies and movies set at christmas new year's is a little bit more you know bit more desolate in that regards so i would I, I just think any any one you can take where you can say this is a new year's movie for someone who wants to watch movies at new year's this is that's this is one that's of your options fair. this and new year's evil You've, i've got two to recommend <laughs> i would suggest watching this right like the night before you're about to go on a cruise <laughs> this and titanic just yes. watching back to back absolutely well it's funny because i was on a plane uh last month uh on my mm-hmm. trip and literally something I watched like the week before, like uh, without like being able to predict it would have this, had like a plane scene where the plane starts to like cry. Like, come oh, on, come on, <laughs> really? I don't need this in my life right now. Yep. But hey, uh, so yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of characters we should sort of uh, introduce uh, in this part of the review. So obviously we sure. have Gene Hackman as the Reverend, mm. who is set up quite you know well early on. He's debating with another priest because you don't even realize he's also like a man of faith at first because he's he's talking to a priest about how. Oh, if you're in a crisis, I think the example he uses that if you're like stuck in out in the ice somewhere or something, mm-hmm. you don't you don't pray for God to help you. You're just going to freeze to death. That's stupid. Like, you know, you have to do it yourself. You have to get up and do something. And yeah. so it's almost like a twist when the, and when the the other priest is like, uh, "Do you sure you believe that, Father?" <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's he's like a sort of radical priest who is like, yes, believe in God, but like you have to do it. With God's like yeah. strength, I, you just... I, I believe the way I've always heard it is God helps those who helps themselves. There you go. That's, that's the phrase. So that, that's very much his character to sell early on. Uh, you, like you said, we have this married couple who is a detective and a mm-hmm. former prostitute. And I have to say, 
the scene that gives us all that exposition early on uh, with them uh, yeah. might be the greatest romantic scene in the history of cinema, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I like... So, so Ernest uh, uh, Borgnine, Bar- Borgnine, Borgnine, yeah, he's he's actually a really cool actor. He just popped up in a movie we did on Ace. Uh, he was in, he's got a small role in Gattaca. Uh, okay, I mean, I know. think that the general public would know him as the voice of Mermaid Man in SpongeBob. That yeah, that's that's probably very true. Uh, mm-hmm. But he he's the detective here, and he's he's you know, he's a solid actor. He's a really good presence. You know, he feels like a character actor. Um, mm-hmm. But the scene with the exposition that sort of explains some of their backstory, him and Linda, like, I, I was laughing because it was, like, such a... I don't want to say cliche. That, that doesn't feel quite right. But it's such, like, an overly dramatic, like, backstory for this couple being together, which is oh, yeah. that she's a former prostitute and she doesn't want to go to the New Year's party. And he says, look, is this because you may get recognized? And I, I at first I thought he meant she'd done porn because, like, you know right. recognizable i was like oh is that because she was in like some movies or something and then mm. it turns out no she was just a prostitute and i was like okay all right okay that's a bit and then he gives the correct argument he's like you know do you know how likely it is that someone on the ship like I mean, how many customers did you really have like really right uh and she's she thinks she recognized someone and he's like whatever but like it turns into this all this like sweet scene where she's like, you arrested me like so many times because she says like, you know, why did you marry? Like, well, I married you, didn't I? So obviously I don't care about this past. He's like, yeah, right. but you arrested me like six times. And he's like, well, yeah, how else can I keep you off the street until I can marry you? And it's like this, and she goes quiet and it's like this sweet thing. And I'm like, this is like the most absurd romantic like connection scene yeah. I think I've seen in quite some time. Like, it's kind of silly, but I also kind of loved it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was as soon as it came down to like, okay, he's a cop because I think that was, there's one scene with them beforehand where a doctor's coming in the room. Uh, I think that was established at that point that he was a cop. Yeah. He's and then, yeah. Yeah. And then this scene opens it all up with the, everything you just said. And I, it just kept going. Like that was the part that got me. It, where yeah, it was it just went, like, it went much further than like, I think I expected to cut away as soon as like he was saying, oh, you worry someone might not recognize you. Maybe mm-hmm. there'd be like a little stinger where she comes out and says something and then it would cut to another scene. But it yeah. just kept going and revealed all of this. I was I was half expecting it to be like, you know, the stereotypical of like, remember when we first met? Remember we were out there on 6th Street? You were working the corner. I was in my car. <laughs> and just go through the whole thing. That, you know, actually, that's a good point. That's what it kind of felt like. It felt almost like this is a scene where two actors would use it as an addition scene or for their demo mm-hmm. reel because like, oh, oh, we can yeah. do a lot of drama because it's like, I'm a cop and she's a ex-prostitute, but we fell in love, damn it. <laughs> so there's all this backstory and history. <laughs> I mean, I could definitely see some high school drama class performing yeah. this scene. Oh, man. So I don't know. I, I got a good chuckle at all this. So we have them. We have an older couple uh, mm-hmm. who are just kind of the sweet old couple. The uh, Rosens. Uh, the the husband of which is, of course, Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka. Oh, they even realized. There you go. Yeah. There you go. This Fine. is the year after he starred in Willy Wonka. He went to this. Wild, wild. Yeah. Uh, so they're just kind of a sweet old couple, and she like really cares about this other guy who's there, this younger guy. who's she, she, She's worried that he's lonely because he's always jogging at the same time. And mm-hmm. he's kind of this like slightly neurotic guy who's like kind of sweet, but he's you know he's he's taking all these like extra pills, like not for medicine reasons, but for you know like vitamins, and yeah, such. vitamins and shit like that. Um, but he seems sweet enough, so he's there. 
Uh, we have mm. the little boy, like you said, and his big sister who are traveling alone. So it's like a teenage girl and her little brother who are traveling mm. to meet their parents, I think, in a destination. Yes, this is a trip uh, from New York to Greece. Yeah. So they're going there. We have them. Uh, we have... There's like a sort of band that's playing at the party who are... Mm. Apparently, they're getting a free trip because they're playing the music for free. But the woman singer of that band becomes one of our, our central characters as well. And her name is Nani. N-O-N-N-I-E. <laughs> yes. Uh, other notable name in the movie is Roddy McDowell, who plays a, a member of the crew uh, named Akers. Yeah. Uh, and he's doing... I think it's meant to be a Scottish accent, but I... I mean, at one point they said the bagpipes. Yeah, that's that's all I got but going off it. That could also mean Irish, but I think he was trying to do a Scottish accent. Now, Roddy McDowell is an English actor. He was born in mm. England, and I, it felt like he was trying to put like a sort of Scottish twang on these sentences. But like, I could hear English a lot of the time anyway. I don't know. It was kind of I don't know, all over the place. Uh, but obviously, he's famous for the Planet of the Apes movies, uh, which obviously is very relevant at this time. This he, this would have been like okay. the second or third one with a like been out the same year as this so mm. uh yeah so no very good um and then other than that is there anyone i'm missing out the um, main group? we have out of the main group no that's all out of the main group okay. but just honorable mention is the captain played by leslie nielsen oh of course which you know what this is not his fault because naked gun and police <laughs> squad so successful yeah but it's impossible to not expect him to like do some silly joke at the end of every scene, and he does—he never does it because he's a serious character in this. Yeah, he, like there was one point where you know the waves approaching, and they just rang in the new year, and he's looking over at the radar, and he's like, "Well, we're gonna have to do this that, and that." By the way, happy new year! And I was like, "Is that a joke?" <laughs> it it feels like you're setting up the same sort of humor just, that's in I, like airplane. I. I just, I felt like at any moment he was going to turn and say something like someone get Nor- tell Norbert to get a bucket or something like, you know, like, you know, just, yep. you know, some sort of naked gun line. And he never, he never does. He's just, he's a serious character in this. Mm-hmm. Um, also, he looked the same age for like 40 years because he looks the same oh, yeah. in this as he does in like Naked Gun and Naked Gun 3, which spans all the way to the 90s at least. Yep. Uh, and I think he had a cameo, or he had a small role in Scary Movie 3, which was the 2000s, and I swear he still looked the same in that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, he he went, you know, grey-haired, very young, and just looked the same <laughs> for for decades and decades. It's uh, He's just got one of those one of those genes. Yep. Um, but, yeah. Also, uh, shout out to Ernest, because uh, I, I when I was looking up some of the actors, I noticed that he made it to 92, and he does not look like a man who was going to make it to 92, so credit to him. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so credit to him. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's our, that's our cast of characters. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously there's a whole lot of red shirts running around because it's a full cruise ship, but... Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I don't... I don't know if cruise is the right word, actually, but... No, it was a cruise. Um, I don't think that there was any... There was no character that really stood out to me as annoying or unnecessary i think the closest you get is acres but even then that has a lot of plot relevance and he wasn't annoying but he he, i don't know he felt like he was just the map for the entire time he was there yeah i think um like his voice was annoying me because it was like try and it's not just because i'm scottish it's just it felt like he was trying to do an accent and it was kind of comical Right. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter that it happened to be like my accent, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, but yeah, everyone kind of serves some kind of purpose. Um, 
I have like maybe one slight you know, observation that I'll make when we're in spoilers about uh, like what characters make it and what don't, and mm. just a, a slight. Maybe I say it's a small thing. It's not even really that big of a deal, but um, brings it down two points automatically, though. <laughs> I never said that. I never <laughs> said that. Um, so no, I mean obviously the the like the. I feel like the, the the strategy with a lot of these disaster movies, especially this and definitely Towering Inferno, which has got like an all-star cast, like it's, it's insane how many faces are in that that are famous at the time period. Right. But it's very much about, the movie's more about the spectacle and the, the survival like scenes that they're going through, but then you just anchor it with some like proper names and, you know, the, in this case you have Gene Hackman to sort of headline it and give it some like weight. And it's not necessarily going to convince you or, or make you pretend that it's not just like a fun action survival movie at its core, mm-hmm. and it's not like a deep thing by any means. I mean, it's getting yeah. deeper as it goes on because the ship's sinking. But <laughs> but um, Tiss, that was a quality joke. Everyone enjoyed that. You know, you yeah, know. Oh, for sure. You know who you are. Uh, but you know, I, like I think that's fundamentally like even a, even a great disaster movie. It's not high art. It's not like you know great. No, no. But it's it's good spectacle cinema potentially, but it's not, you know, it's it's not going to compare to your your Godfather or your, you know. <laughs> yeah, no. The the I think the best that a disaster movie can hope for in terms of getting that sort of artistry is character piece, where it puts mm-hmm. together these disparate characters and sees, you know, you can trap people in basically a bottle episode for the entirety of the movie via these disasters these people are all trapped in this ship they cannot get away from each other and i think the most skillfully done disaster movies are going to be the ones that do those analyzations of how do these people when forced together either work or don't work together you know it's uh, when you've said phrased it like that you've made me realize like just how similar to something like the living dead a disaster movie is Mm-hmm. and how that is a good example that is lauded for all the right reasons because it is this character study of how this you know the social structure of the characters and what they represent and how it breaks down and or, or anything that's a, a sort of group of characters trapped in a location it's right. just that disaster movies inherently have to have a lot of like big spectacle action scenes and that tends mm-hmm. to take over and why they don't necessarily have as much time to delve into that stuff whereas yeah. something like night of the living dead which is a more of a low budget horror movie does delve into that because that's what it's going to focus on outside of its uh spooky stuff so <laughs> um that's just an interesting comparison that I never really considered. Uh, but cool. So I think we'll uh, give spoiler warning, and we'll just work through some of the, the the bits and pieces of the movie that I think are worth talking about. Uh, right. Spoiler obviously... warning: the boat sinks. Technically, you never actually see it sink in the movie. It's still at least part of it's still sticking out of the water at the end. I mean, we do have a sequel, so yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's the same boat. It may be because the, the the movie's about uh, the second movie that we're going to do, which I've not seen, but I'm just reading Sorry. the synopsis. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, thieves going back to pillage a ship that's been overturned. So I don't know if it is the same. It could literally be the ship that they're going back to yeah. steal from, but I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't have to be though. <laughs> you too can find out for as low as however much money per month. Three dollars per month. <laughs> Three dollars per month. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so. Yeah, um, you know, it interests the characters. It makes you like the captain a little bit because he's nice to the boy, even though he's like dealing with. The... In fact, this is a... I was surprised that this character didn't stick around for longer. Actually, not the captain per se, 
because uh, mm. that, that was kind of like that was your uh your drew barrymore and scream let's have a big star like oh yeah go out in the Absolutely. first act kind of you know to make it feel like a big deal but there's this like the blood-sucking lawyer character who represents the company who owns the ship yeah. who's who basically puts them in danger by insisting that they don't take proper precautions by going he's like no we're behind schedule that's i don't care how safe it is we need to keep going now mm. pick up speed full steam ahead all that shit I was expecting it to stick around a lot more because I feel like this is also a a bit of a trope in some of these movies. Not all oh, of them, but yeah. this type of character who's uh, there to like basically make things more dangerous because with his ignorance, uh, because it's all about the money and the corporate yeah. side of things. Because I mean, in terms of this movie, I don't think there's pretty much anything they could have done to stop a ninety foot wave from tipping them over. Nah. But in particular, basically, they were saying, "Hey, because of this guy's actions, the ship is too top heavy." And they would have loaded in some, like, extra water to even it out so that it would not be too top-heavy. But he said, no, 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 keep it light. We're going to get there by, like, the end of the night or something like that. So Yeah, it affects how it starts sinking and how it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, there is consequences to what he was doing, um, Mm -hmm. but maybe they could have played with that a bit more. I don't know. Uh, I mean, like you're saying, I think that he easy way to just rewrite it to have him survive is keep this ship going don't slow down for anything i'm going down to the new year's party and then he just ends up there but instead yeah yeah he dies at the same time as everyone else so yeah during the wave yeah Mm. um because everyone up on deck which is you know most people are at the party and the the big ballroom area in the ship but obviously some of the crew and some you know the captains up in the bridge and stuff they all Mm. Yeah, they're instantly killed effectively because they're oh, they're up top when the, the the wave hits, uh, and when the ship turns upside down. So, yeah, um, you know, it, it sets up the characters well enough. I mean, we kind of went into like how it sets most of them up for them. You know, by and large, mm-hmm. like we we talked about the scenes that they get. Um, you know, some of them do feel more important than others, right? Obviously, Hackman and uh, the detective they they feel the most important of the male characters. Um, in terms of the female characters, it's probably like the two wives that feel the most important uh, out of them. They definitely get more than like the teenage girl, and the the, the band girl uh, is just kind of silent a lot of the time. I mean, band girl, yeah, she's definitely at the lowest of the totem pole. But I, up until the third act reveal, I would honestly put uh, the older woman under the teenager. I feel like the teenager was given a lot of wiggle room there, and not all of it on the up and up, considering the age she was portraying. <laughs> yeah well i think by the end though that the, the older wife is a more yes, prominent by the, character by the end it definitely becomes more but i don't think i think that only is in the last act and, i don't think that it was well, before that yeah but to be fair they, they do kind of set it up though like, there's, there's like a, a build of her like thinking because she's overweight she keeps thinking oh I, i'm just going to stay back when everyone else is leaving early on because i don't think i can survive and then she's constantly thinking, oh, can I fit in there because I'm too fat? Can I do this because I'm too overweight? Mm-hmm. Because And she's constantly scared. So when she gets a sort of big payoff where she's like, no, wait, I used to be a swimmer. I can actually help in this situation in a way that no one else can, mm-hmm. even though it's been a long time since it's because I was like in high school. Right. But yeah. like, you know, I trained to hold my breath for long and that's not a skill that's not necessarily, you know, went away potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, the fact that she seems to have a heart attack or or whatever yeah when she's finished i was gonna say this this boat killed most of the people in this party but surprisingly not all the people like i feel like that's kind of the thing in the disaster movie where the disaster usually gets to claim all the deaths but 
strangely enough, someone got away. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess... Uh... I mean, I, I, I guess I kind of like the idea that some of the deaths were either preventable because of people's choices. Oh, yeah. Or... Well, no, it especially, it, it yeah. especially comes down with uh, Gene Hackman's whole thing, where basically as soon as this party splits off from the rest of the party, uh, he basically says, as a reverend, like, I will not let my people die. These people will make it to the end. And every single time one of them dies, it feels that much more personal because yeah. he's made this oath to get them all out. But it goes back to his introduction where he has attitude with these crises because they just want to stay there because the, there's a guy in the ship, I can't remember his, his title. Uh, the Purser. There you go, the Purser, right? Who's claiming, like, I'm the one who really runs this place. And what he means by that is because, and he describes it, he actually says it you know, in the in the dialogue, he says, this is effectively a hotel that's on a boat and I'm the hotel manager. So that kind of makes me more important than the captain. Yeah, except for any of the sailing shit, obviously. <laughs> I mean, when has the sailing shit ever? Oh, right. This yeah, time. yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, he's like, oh no, this this boat's built to withstand certain things. Blah 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 blah. We should stay here until they come and rescue us. But Gene Hackman's thing, right from the start of the movie, even the story he's telling at the start to the other priest is, no, be proactive. You should do something to save yourself. No one's going to come mm -hmm. and save you necessarily. You have to actually try and save yourself. So that's his like mantra to the whole movie. We have to keep moving. We have to do the most logical thing, and the most logical thing. Uh, based on the, because the kid's like a, a boat, like, not, he likes boats. And most... He gets on, he's like the kid who's like, wow, did you know that this and that and the other thing about this boat? <laughs> but, you know, the, the logic is, is that the hull's its thinnest at the back of the ship, so that's where they're mm -hmm. going to go. Um, and there's actually, there's a really funny moment here where uh, Borgnine, because uh, the kid says, you know, like, the hull's the thinnest there, but it's, it's only one inch thick. And he, <laughs> he, he crouches down and goes, Kid, do you know how thick one inch of steel is? And I really wanted the kid to go, yeah, one inch. Yeah, <laughs> so this much. Yeah, an inch is still, I mean, I know it's harder to cut through because it's steel, but it's still, it's still yeah. less, I mean, as Gene Hackman puts it, it's still less than two inches. Yeah, do you know how <laughs> thick one inch of steel is? One inch less than two inches. Let's go. <laughs> No, but there's actually a logic to it, because at the end of the movie, when some of them finally get there, it's like, mm. yeah, the rescue team go there to cut through, because that's where they can cut through, because it's thinner there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's some logic to that. Yeah, I, I, I believe the logic, but I also think... I don't know, it felt a little bit deus ex machina for me i mean it's a bit coincidental that this, yeah. the, the minute they get there is when there's like people on top like banging and saying hey like is there anyone down there yeah you know that, that's a, but it's the sort of thing they've been through so much hell that as a movie oh, yeah. you're you're happy for them to get the win you're like yes i mean as soon as it came down to that last scene and they didn't have it be like oh the explosions have already opened up a hole in the hull if they weren't going to go that route then yeah you either have someone on the outside or you let everyone die well, and I that's think, just how you want the mood of the movie to go. Exactly. And I think it works thematically with the movie because... So the whole thing with Gene Hackman's character is that he believes that you have to be proactive. And there's various moments where people challenge him. He says, no, we have to keep doing something. We have to keep going this way. And at one point when... And we'll talk about some of the scenarios they go through. But at one point, mm -hmm. they encounter other survivors who were, you know, just because... Well, they were lower to begin with, but obviously they're higher up now because it's upside down. And yeah. they survived. And they're going towards the front of the ship. And he's like, no, that's the wrong thing because that's the side that's starting to sink. Like, that side's going to go underwater first. So that's that's mm -hmm. a stupid direction to go in. And there's a bit of a debate and he, he's determined. 
and he leads them through all this thing and you know by the time we get to the end like you know two three four characters however many it's been have died by the time mm-hmm. we get there and gene hackman's character makes a sacrifice he sacrifices himself there's like a final hurdle there's the hatch that's going to lead to like the final area of the ship they need to get to to get to that bit of the hull yep. and there's like a, a pipe that bursts and there's like steam coming out hot steam coming out and it's like literally blocking their access to this door and hackman jumps to the lever knowing that he can't come back from it but as he do- he's doing so he's basically yelling at god and saying hey you prick like oh, yeah. we have done all of this we've made it this far don't you dare like you let these people through like you give them a chance but he, but he does it by like sacrificing and he falls to his death mm-hmm. in the fire he lets go it's a big sacrifice moment so it's kind of putting his money where his mouth is where it's like it's not just that he's saying all these things he's willing to be the one who actually does it even if it means his own end so right i think you can kind of read the ending as like a, a reward for like his faith if you will that you know the reason why yeah. the people happen to be there to save them was the deus ex machina of well he earned this like he you know if there is a god and he the way he talks about this god is like mm-hmm. it's a very he's not this worshiping priest he's like this is a very kind of like confrontational relationship where he's like f you dude oh, yeah. i'm going to prove myself and you have to give back because i prove that i deserve it and i've earned their 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 lives so we've lost enough if you're taking one more person take me that's an exact line of dialogue that he has when he's like yelling Mm -hmm. at god yeah i mean i think i think that uh something just going through this obviously there's this semi-religious thing going Mm -hmm. on the entire time i don't know how familiar you are with religious parables and stuff like that but the three that were really jumping out with me was not at all for the record but go on. <laughs> fair enough then i'll explain my reasoning uh noah and the ark for obvious reasons uh particularly with the party scene where he's basically shouting down to these people hey this place is going to flood you okay. will not survive here to be fair and then, I, I know the story of noah's ark right to be fair, right, I, didn't, fair enough. I didn't realize you wouldn't go that broad with it but <laughs> i mean i'm going yeah. to get more specific but yeah. that was the first obvious one and then the the floor breaks open, the flood comes up, and people are literally trying to climb up to him, and nobody else makes Which it. Which, just so... since, we're, since we're on this, uh, mm. this was the timing one that made me sort of go, really, movie? Oh, yeah. This quick, like, it's literally the second that his group that he's convinced to leave and climb up the Christmas tree to get to this, you know, the, the lower deck, as it were, up top. Mm-hmm. Um, the second that like, he's up there is when the water starts bursting through. And it's not are... even the second he's up there. It's the second that he explicitly says, come with me, and they say, no, we'll be safer down here. Swish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's very funny uh, how quick it is. And then, of course, because they're all trampling up the tree at the same time, it tips over. Yep. And, and that's that. You're all dead. Uh, the second religious one is the story of Job. Uh, this is particularly one where it's that... God is basically testing one of his most devoted followers Mm. and, you know, keeps on taking and taking and taking. The difference being is that in the story of Job, Job is like, it's okay, I still believe. Whereas Gene Hackman character is like, screw you, dude. I don't need you. I think that's why I liked him. Because as an atheist, these types of religious characters, like depending on how they're handled, can either work for me or not, Mm. you know, depending on what it's trying to do. But I kind of liked his confrontational attitude. It was kind of like, oh, yeah. like, you know what? If you're up there, you bastard, like, prove yourself now. I, I've earned the proof. <laughs> Damn it! Yeah, you know, absolutely. I like that. Uh, and then, and then the last one is not so much biblical, but Dante's Inferno. The oh, story, yeah. As they, of hell and all that. as they make their way deeper into the boat, as same way Dante makes his way deeper into hell, they're actually getting that much closer 
to being saved. Yeah. And in the end, I mean, the last shot is literally a hole into the sky opens up and they are pulled through it. Like, that's as close as you're going to get to the story of Dante, really. No, these are all wonderful things to bring up that do add a little bit of depth uh, to like what the movie's doing. Um, you know, I don't know how strong these allegories are that it's playing with necessarily as a, as a movie, but certainly, you know, given that it's a religious character and that there is at least some talk of, like, his beliefs and how that's shaping how he handles the situation and then how he acts at the end, at the very mm-hmm. least, it, it does paint a strong enough character that his sacrifice at the end does mean something. Like, it does feel oh, like... You know, it feels like, especially since it's right after um, a couple of deaths, there's a couple of key deaths towards the end. I did mm-hmm. think it was uh, a bit... <laughs> like, I-, I thought it was a little shitty that, like, the two most prominent female characters get fridged, and... Yeah. You know, that felt a bit weird, especially since they happen pretty much back-to-back, because the 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 older woman dies after she does the swimming thing, and she saves Gene Hackman by doing so, but then she dies right after... And we get, you know, the sad scene of her husband, like, you know, crying and not wanting to go on, but, you know, Hackman kind of convincing them. Um, but then we get, you know, Linda, uh, the cop's wife, uh, just, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, an explosion somewhere that yeah. causes the ship to shake and she falls as they're climbing and she falls into the fire and the pit. And, you know, I, 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 hers was so sudden, which, like, I, I get the purpose of it in the moment to, to get them at the lowest point where Hackman mm-hmm. is going to make this this final kind of sacrifice um but i did kind of feel like oh wait shit like the, the two female characters that we've put the most time into admittedly hackman kind of evened the scale up a little bit because yeah. before before hackman died it was like okay it was acres who died first and then the two most prominent female characters hackman mm-hmm. does kind of balance it out a little bit because like he but you know he he has agency in his though he gets to choose to die that's true and I, to, I, to be fair the older woman does choose to like take the risk and swim to like try and save them you know she mm-hmm. does do a, a, a heroic act to be fair as well yeah, I mean, I definitely feel that, that the the whole thing was that they have to swim through an underwater tunnel and come out the other side. Gene Hackman, he volunteers to go, and he's taking a bit too long, to which point the woman jumps in and says, oh, I was this world-class swimmer when I was younger, and she jumps down in the water and saves him. And then she comes out and has a heart attack, or some sort of other thing happens where just her body was not able to keep up. Um, I felt like that was some final destination crap going on there where it was like, no, I'm owed a death. Someone's <laughs> going to die here. Uh, I mean, it worked well enough for me. I, I think her motivation to feel useful uh, worked oh, for absolutely. me. Uh, that, but that's what I'm saying. That entire scene, I, I understand what you're saying is that over the movie itself, it built up her desire yeah. to feel useful in that she was always just i literally have my third note down here is bell which is her character name is literal dead weight yeah and i was writing that as the point where they were dragging her up that ramp of the upside down stairs she everyone else managed to walk everyone else managed to like move their way up along with the assistance of the rope but not her she was just like dead weight being pulled up that said, way. though, the kid did have like a banger of a line during this this moment as well. Oh, absolutely! The, the kids because they're using like a fire hose. Up the thing with. Yeah, they're they're, they're using the, the fire hose uh, to to pull her up, and the kid says, "Don't worry, miss. I helped my dad pull in a six hundred pound fish." Which, by the way, what fish when you go fishing? 
would would be six hundred pounds. Uh, a marlin, a swordfish. That's I don't that. know if that's accurate. No, uh, I'll give but, it a look. I'm just I'm trying to imagine a father and son going fishing and pulling in a fish that weighs six hundred pounds. That's a pretty big fish. Uh, the weight record for swordfish is thirteen hundred pounds. What? So halfway in the middle there, I'm going to go ahead and say probably. I the ocean's realize, a big place, man. I did not realize... Like, 600 pounds, like, I'm thinking, like, a whale at 600 pounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure that'll be heavier than 600, but... Oh, yeah. Like, you know... I, I, that, yeah, it's... The ocean allows for bigger things than you could possibly fathom. I did not think a swordfish was that big, but fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I've learned something today. Um... But yeah, but they did bring that line back up though, where the kid realizes, oh, that probably came out quite insensitive. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because she's not, she's not that big. <laughs> she... Well, it's even better when he brings it up. He's like, by the way, miss, I hope you didn't mean that the wrong way. Like, I just meant that I was able to help. And she's like, that's what you're worried about. That's the, the... you're fine, kid. Don't worry about it, man. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, she she keeps saying that she's too fat for things. We should point out that she, yeah, she's a bit overweight, but she's not like that no. big she, she's she's kind of what i would say a typical woman her age is commonly yeah. size wise no, i mean she's definitely it's not like you know character actor wise where it's you got to get someone specifically to be that horrifically obese on camera no. it's just an average weight and i think it's i mean yes they did focus on her weight a few times but i also think that they equally focused on her age yeah because she is at this point i mean her actor the actress is only like 52 at the time of filming, but she it's played up that she, you know, she has a grandson and that's the whole reason that they're taking this trip is to go see their grandson. She's supposed to be up there in years and therefore just not as mobile, I think is what they're really trying to get across. Yeah. I, I think the other thing is that other characters only reference it after she says it herself. So it's almost like her self doubt makes them just doubt her. Not because they necessarily think she is okay. too fat, but just because well, she's just going to be a problem, so either way, I get stuck behind her, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, she is literally the only person out of the initial crew, barring Ernest Borgnine's character, kinda, that is just straight up like, no, I'm just gonna stay here. I'm not gonna yeah. do anything. Yeah. I mean, Borgnine's character does kind of get confrontational with Gene Hackman. Sometimes it mm. makes sense, and obviously when his wife falls to her death, it makes sense that he's instantly like, oh, yeah. you got her killed. Like, And obviously that's not really true. It's not his fault there was a tremor at that moment, but, no. you know, like I understand why he's upset at the moment. And at least they they, they did like such a, a good job of making that pair, like him and his wife, be a memorable set. Because I wouldn't say, as much as I'd say Linda was the other most like spent, you know, the, the other most prominent female character, it's not so much that she had that much of an arc or anything. She just had a lot of time where she got to bounce off of him. She got to have these lines, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say really nobody in this movie had a particular arc. Everyone kind of just ended up where they began. The only person I would say that had an arc would be the band singer and the weird guy, like the neurotic one. Those were the only two who, like, over the course of the movie, they found their footing and, like, managed to do more than they originally would have been able to do, yeah. but everyone else kind of just ended up where they started. I will say, I, two points on this. One, I appreciate that like the whole thing with the neurotic guy is that, oh, he needs to find a wife. And mm-hmm. and obviously, it's very clear that like him looking after the band singer is like, oh, maybe that's going to be like someone yeah. he can... For- I appreciate that they didn't actually do anything like super romantic with it. He's just there for her. 
so she she sort of like feels safe around them and it never mm-hmm. does anything else it's just like yeah like they might become a couple after the movie but it, the movie didn't you know like oh they're not going to have the big passionate kiss in the middle of the oh, yeah. third act or whatever um i will say it depends how you define art because i i was I, I do think that at least if it's not an arc, there is at least some payoffs to like the characters that are set up much like gene hackman's sacrifice and speech at the end like that feels mm-hmm. like it's a sort of you know a final point to his character um and likewise having Borne not believing in him getting pissed at him but then afterwards being like he was right you know the preacher was right like he mm-hmm. got us to where he needed to go like, there, there is like set up and payoff to the characters even if it's not necessarily arcs and i think it's because this type of movie doesn't necessarily lend itself to having character arcs in the traditional sense it's oh, more no, especially now with such an actual ensemble like yeah. if you if for more like the movie 2012 or something like that that's john cusack's movie however many other characters yeah. are in it john cusack has his arc this one yes gene hackman like you said he has a payoff yes ernest Borg nine he has a set and payoff and i do think everyone has a setup and payoff like the kid he's so adamant in the beginning of we need to get to this location because that's where the holocene is and it pays off like he was right yeah. they congratulate the kid for doing so but it is always for everybody except for the main two male leads really it's all functional it's all as a result of the plot not really as so much of you know this ex- it w- because we made it to the end you have gotten your payoff which I think's okay. I think I think this is all about what the expectations are of a movie like this. Is oh yeah, that absolutely. You have so many characters. You have all these action set pieces to go through. Like having like an ensemble where everyone at least has some sort of payoff to the character is really all you can ask for. Um, oh yeah, I'm not I'm not expecting this yeah. movie to open up because there's ten characters in the main group. I'm not expecting this movie to go in and show us how their flaw is. And then before some of them die and the rest of them before they leave, the flaw is fixed. Like, no, I'm not expecting that for every character. It is how they play with those flaws, how they play with each character that makes it an interesting story. And I think as long as you care enough when someone does die, I mean, Akers is a bit earlier on and he's kind of there for an early shock death and he is kind of like a later character, so it makes sense. Um, But the others, I think they all have some impact where the other three characters who die... The older woman, you know, when she has this sudden heart attack or whatever it is after the swimming bit, like, when Bornine comes through, because he swims through after to see what's happened, and he finds out that she's dead, he's nervous about telling the husband, what do I tell the husband? And when he mm-hmm. goes back, and he has this moment, it's like, okay, she got through, and, and she, you know, she, she's did it, and she, she's basically, like, laid a path for us, she saved us all. And so he's, he's phrasing it in this way, where because he's been this, like, kind of, he's kind of like this sort of, like, you know, very loud character who's quick to, like, disagree with people. So mm-hmm. him sort of like tiptoeing around the truth and trying to consider this like husband's feelings that he's talking to, as well as the group, it actually comes off as this really like sweet thing from him because it's like so above and beyond like what his character typically does is the, when he's like, interacting with others that you feel the weight of it like, no, she's really dead and he really feels the weight of that and he's trying to like be as nice about it. And the husband kind of sees there's, like, there's something happened in it because you're, you're kind mm-hmm. of dodging the subject a little bit i specifically said the words is she all right and you did not specifically yeah. say the word yes no he just repeats she got through but mm. you know it's like no she did that for us she, she pulled this off for us and that means something to to him that you know he recognizes that and that, that's kind of you know that works and then the death of the, the linda the wife okay. of the cop yep. is that i think you know when he looks down and he, he, you see her like burning body like in the fire 
It, did you actually see that? Because I I tried to catch it and it just looked like the fire to me. I didn't see the, the body. I mean, it's probably a dummy. It's not like, uh, like well, it's actually yeah, her. But like, but yeah, no, they I, didn't I, set her on fire. No, Darn, two points removed. I saw the figure. Yes, I saw the figure okay, in the in the fire. Uh, and he's looking down there and he's distraught. Like, I'm not saying the movie made me care about her character in the sense that I'm, like, feeling this big punch, but mm -hmm. I believe how much he cares about her at this oh, point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? So when he's looking down and he's feeling desolate, he's like, oh, this whole thing might fall. He might tr tackle Gene Hackman off this railing because he's mm -hmm. so upset right now. You know, like, so I think it's effective. And then obviously Hackman's got the big sacrifice, so his death means something, but... yeah. Honestly, though, I would I would honestly say Aker's death also means something because that's the first point. That's the first point where someone dies, and uh, yeah, that's fair. they specifically have the scene mirroring the ending scene where Hackman blames uh, Borgnine's character. He's like, "It was your I told you to kept everybody rounded up," and in the ending scene, Hackman almost kind of like takes responsibility for the fact that he led Linda here to die. He's like, yeah, okay, and I'll sacrifice myself. Like, I'm the only person who's going to die from this point forward. But in the earlier scene, when Hackman's accusing Borgnine of, like, it's your fault he's dead, Borgnine just deflects the entire time. He's like, oh, well, he's dead, nothing more to say about it, let's move on. Like, he and doesn't take any responsibility for and it. And that's why I think Borgnine may even have the biggest character arc, if I'm mm -hmm. looking at it in terms of arcs, because... His whole thing is that he does things by the book and he's a cop and he doesn't really, like, he, he always, he never wants to actually think for himself and just think of the solution. He always just goes whatever the, the rules say. Mm -hmm. And then he blames anyone for, you know, whenever anything goes wrong, he blames Hackman because Hackman's the one who took him off the rule book, right? That's, yeah. that's kind of the, 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 the way it works. And then the ending is ultimately, like, he's like, no, like, the, 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 he's like, hey, he told you to get them through. He turned to him and he's like, you're, you're the one who should be in charge if I go. So you get them through right yep. you you do this you you save this group of people and you help mm -hmm. them as a protector um him sort of rising to that challenge after like hackman sort of proved that he's not just all talk by sacrificing himself is kind of like yeah that's kind of his arc and that he does ultimately take that responsibility and then mm -hmm. is you know and rewarded for it ultimately with surviving and getting the people out but yeah. he, he does that at the expense of losing his own wife you know it's not about his own personal like gains or like keeping what he cares about anymore it's about doing yeah. it just to save innocent people which is i mean literally the last shot i think we get of borg nine is he's looking up at the hole and everyone else is just like so happy so like yeah oh, <laughs> uh they're so happy that they're able to escape that this um he's the only person who's looking back he's the only person who looks back through the door and it was just like is it even worth it sort of thing yeah. where it's like was it worth what we lost so. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I think yeah, I, I think I guess what we're really complimenting here, because I don't think that a lot of these movies are going to hold up to this level of scrutiny, is we have just sat here and said that all four of the prominent deaths that happen out of the main group mm -hmm. all add something to the film and all mean something and they all yeah. matter, and I I don't think that's going to be true when we start at breaking down some no. of these other movies. I mean, I'll personally, if that's the way that we're going to measure things, I will personally say whether or not I think out of character, named character deaths, because Lord knows we had four named character deaths, ignoring the deck crew, but there were at least, I think, a hundred screen deaths. Oh, yeah. There's a red shirt going left and right. And yeah. to, to be fair, like, it's a shame that uh, there's so right after they've done the climbing out of the party area, uh, Hackman like goes through the kitchen 
And it's a shame that there's a really obvious shitty dummy for like a dead body oh, in the yeah, foreground. Absolutely. And the reason why I say that's a shame, a shame, is because uh, in the aftermath of the actual, like, you know, the the, the actual, you know, the, the capsizing, and like the initial, like, like everyone sort of getting up and seeing like what's happened uh, when once they're first upside down, is there's mm. actually some pretty dark shots of just dead bodies, like the actors like you know portraying dead bodies just lying around. And oh, a couple, yeah. and a couple of them that you recognise because they were sitting at the table with some of the main characters. You know, there was like a woman sitting next to Gene Hackman who you see lying there dead. And I thought for a movie from the early seventies, that's you know a big mainstream sort of like blockbuster style. I mean, this is before blockbusters were called blockbusters, but this is effectively right. what this is. Uh, I thought, oh, this actually feels that there's some weight to this because it feels quite dark that we're just seeing these random dead people lying around in the mm-hmm. in the ballroom uh so it was uh, it, so it stuck out to me a lot when we got to that i think it's because it's right at the, the edge of the frame and maybe you know they thought oh no one's going to notice or yeah. or whatever i don't know it's like we don't have to have the same level of detail for this scene mm. uh but i noticed that and <laughs> and, and some and people yeah and some people might say oh but you're, you're watching in like hd now and it's all remastered and stuff i'm like yeah but 35 millimeter film which is the way this was shown at the time um yep. is where that quality comes from so that, that you know in theaters that quality was there it, at least and uh, assuming the print was of good quality because yeah. obviously it degrades over time but um, um spinning off the visuals one major critique i had was the audio editing sure and there were just two specific moments for it uh the time where right after that scene right after the party starts drowning and everything like that and then right after gene hackman drops into the water both times the audio is just looping a scream like at least three times Mm. in a row before they finally move off it and it was really apparent to me like i don't know if there was a i'm sure there was some reason where you know they didn't pick up enough audio or something like that of the particular scream or Mm. whoever talking to fill the visual time but it was it was not blended well it definitely was like super apparent the entire time that it was looping so that's just on my side things i've noticed yeah that's fair uh sticking with the audio um the music's good i'd say it's, it's got kind of a bombastic yeah. kind of i mean it won best original song at the oscars that year so. song well i don't know but so- i was i was just talking about the score what, what was the mm-hmm. song <laughs> i think that it was the song part of the score i think it was called okay. like tomorrow or something like that but uh yeah john williams did the score so Oh, well, that's why it sounded good. I didn't even realize mm-hmm. it was a John Williams score. There yep. you go. Uh, and this is like, you know, before he even did Jaws. This is like really early <laughs> John Williams. Uh, that's kind of wild. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, as far as like some of the set pieces goes, we've, we've kind of brought them up and just talking about the characters. But, uh, yeah, you've got the initial capsizing and the claiming out of the ballroom. You've mm-hmm. got the going through the, the kitchen, which is basically just Hackman himself. And then he says, okay, it's safe. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got the going up the stairs or the upside down stairs, which is the ramp. Um, mm. And then you're climbing through kind of the, the shaft, the big shaft that's filling with water. It reminds me a lot, obviously this came first, but it reminds me a lot of a, a sequence in Deep Blue Sea, which is a very similar cylindrical, cylindrical shaft right? Uh, that they're climbing up. Yep. Um, and you've got that. Uh, but... Yeah, and then, you know, after that, you're getting towards the ending where they try to get to the engine room. I appreciate that the goal never really changed. It was kind of like the, the same goal mm-hmm. the entire time. It was just a case of, okay, this is the journey to get there. I think when we end up comparing this to some of the other disaster movies of the time period and ones that came mm-hmm. later, is I think we're going to sort of find that 
this doesn't have the biggest all-star cast and it doesn't necessarily have the biggest set piece moments but its fundamentals are probably going to end up feeling more solid just because it has deaths that matter characters that feel like they matter a bit more and uh, yeah. just a general satisfying uh overall movie experience um because mm-hmm. i don't think any of the, the situations they find themselves in are like some of the more memorable of a disaster movie but they're all solids and like how they're portrayed yeah i mean i i think that's honestly probably the only flaw i could really find in the movie is that when if someone six months from now asked me hey what were the beats what were the trials that they went yeah. through in Poseidon I don't think I could tell them I think the most I could probably remember is going to be the uh the initial climbing up the Christmas tree one just because it had a very iconic here's this giant metal tree that we're leaning up against the thing and it felt so bombastic as well the entire time that they were like picking up this tree and the whole team was leaning it up against the railing it was you... it had the big music score to it where a lot of this movie was pretty much absent of score during you... the big moments yeah yeah there's only a few key moments where it came out it came out obviously a lot towards the end mm-hmm. uh do you think that the reason why and, and more so in the book than the movie necessarily but uh the reason why it's set in new year's is so there would be a christmas tree to climb i'm sure that they could have found any reason to do it I think that the reason it's set at New Year's is just to add that extra bit of tragedy where yeah, it's okay. everyone is partying and then they all die. Yeah, I suppose actually the main reason that if I was to think about it, now that I am thinking about it, it would be that it's what puts all those people in the same part of the ship. Like Most mm-hmm. of the people are at this party and that's why. Because yeah. if it wasn't New Year's, then you would say that, okay, even if there's a party going on, a lot of people would sit it out. But because it's New Year's, most people will go to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or- it it just needs some way to... Because that's the point that Gene Hackman makes. He specifically says, everybody who was above this deck when the ship flipped over is definitely already dead. And yeah. the movie does nothing to argue that point. So then as soon as they get out of the room and we show that the water comes up from below them, which is above their point, we can assume, okay, he's correct. And we have visual proof that everyone is dead. So it makes us solely focus on these people as the only survivors and obviously we find out later on in the movie there was other people who i guess were even farther below deck and are now making their way towards the bow but once again we don't focus on them they're just a temptation along the way uh, and that those survivors look mostly like staff it was like the doctor the nurses mm. some crew you know it was people who would yeah. have been working down below somewhere doing stuff yeah uh, so it made enough sense that they, you know, there were some people in lower decks doing stuff. You oh, know, absolutely. While the ship's not functioning. everyone gets invited to the New Year's party. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, that was the thing. Bornein's all proud at the start because he's he's been invited to set the captain's table for the mm. for the party. Having the Reverend get to go and set the captain's table. Yep, I do love how uh, his wife's one comment is just like he just invited you because you're a de- lieutenant detective. I was like, is that really, is that really enough of a reason? To be a lieutenant detective, that's the... Sure, okay. Must be a very lightweight ship. I don't know. It depends who else is on the ship. Um, I mean, in fairness, the only people we see are two retirees, a haberdasher, <laughs> a lieutenant detective, a prostitute, and two kids. Ex-prostitute, I think you're saying. Ex-prostitute, my bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a slight note on her wardrobe, actually, is uh, on that scene where they're having all the exposition, uh, she's in mm-hmm. like a nighty thing, 
And this thing like is like molded around their boobs to the point where there's nothing left to the imagination about the size and shape of those things. Okay, here's here's <laughs> I just want to bring this up real quick because they focus okay. on this in the movie and it actually makes it a little bit creepier. Is that so the very first girl to climb up the tree is the young teenager, Gene Hackman, who this girl has a fascination with, to say the very least. He says, <laughs> that dress is too long, gonna have to lose it. And she's wearing, of course, something underneath. So it's hot pants, but it's still something. Then the ex-prostitute comes up, Linda. She steps up and he's like, once again, that dress is too much. You're going to have to lose it. But this time, all she's wearing underneath is her underwear. She doesn't have any actual clothes. So Borgnine's character has to give her a dress shirt that just kind of drapes over and covers her Which, you know. Other put, bits. Puts him in just the, the vest, which is a good die-hard look, you know, Absolutely. for Bloodline. Yeah. So, all fine so far, because the rules have been followed. Then Belle steps up, the older <laughs> woman. And strangely enough, Hackman does not tell her that her flowy dress needs to go. Her flowy <laughs> dress can stay. That is, that is a very good point. I even think of that. That is a very good point. Just pointing out perhaps the hypocrisy of mm-hmm. uh not so much hackman's character i mean it is hackman's character but the just movie making the hollywood yeah. <laughs> hollywood's like, oh i'm sorry you're over the age of 40 you can keep the dress on yes although funnily enough um it's, it's, it's obviously more of a comedy beat but he does actually touch her more than the other two women oh absolutely because That's she, gets, being, she, she gets, gets halfway up and then he realizes <laughs> like oh wait i forgot to tell her to take off the dress well i better get it in now she gets stuck yeah uh so he has to push her up via the ass cheeks uh and and then he follows up with uh forgive me for getting familiar yeah (laughs) to be fair i mean maybe that's the point maybe he forgot to say that and then she got stuck not because she's overweight but because the dress got stuck. her dress was caught i think they actually did say something like that how she her dress was caught in a spoke so yeah maybe they had it for but see the only eventuality for that plot beat is to get gene hackman to touch her ass so not really plot necessary there. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can't really necessarily justify the difference between how he asked them to like get their skirts away and not her. Mm-hmm. But I will say that having to push her up via her ass is important to her character because it's the first embarrassing thing that happens to her. You know, it's this, this embarrassing Fair. moment that mm-hmm. is going to propel this idea that she feels shitty about everyone having to help her and push her or pick her up the staircase or yeah. whatever it is so yeah that's fair yeah so uh, as much as it's played for a, a kind of a funny beat because uh, there's not a lot of comedy in this i would say i would say there's not, like mm-hmm. i think that's the other thing that separates this and maybe a modern disaster i think i feel like a modern disaster movie kind of in line with what marvel movies do now have to have a, a quota of funny characters oh, absolutely and funny lines and i don't think this movie felt the need to do that by and large um, and the few things that were there, there were kind of sweet because it was the kid saying something about her weight and then apologizing for it. And it was yeah. like, oh, okay, it's kind of sweet and innocent enough. Yeah, I think this movie did a good job of balancing the sort of, you know, everyone here is freaked out. Everyone here's tensions are running high and mm-hmm. everyone's very quick to get emotional. However that goes, anger, grief, whatever it is, they are very quick to get there. But they don't, have a character there who responds to fear or whatever with humor there's no one who is just kind of jokingly the whole time be like 
Well, guys, I guess uh, I'll see you guys in the kitchen. I'm whipping up some food or something like that. Like, he's not, no one's ever trying to make anyone else feel better. They are literally just focused on the mission. Yeah. Um, yeah, by and large. I mean, there's like a few scenes where, like, Hackman or someone does try to make someone feel better, but it's not done through comedy. It's done through, yeah. you know, genuine, like, you know, trust me, we can get through this. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, 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 make sure you're okay kind of you know like propping yeah, them up absolutely. in you know more realistic ways that aren't uh here's a silly bit of hijinks to cheer you up Whoa. yeah um so like they they very easily could have had the character who like they swim through that underwater tunnel and the guy comes out with like a fish in his underwear or something like that <laughs> it would have been so easy but they didn't and i appreciate that i i also appreciate that uh, i think it would have lowered the the tone of the movie uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit um so yeah i would generally say i I think this is a fairly solid movie and Mm. i mean it's a solid movie and i think as a disaster movie it's probably up there as one of the you know like i mean this is the first one we're reviewing so you know this we don't really have a baseline yet (laughs) but um so obviously it's the best one we've done so far because it's the only one we've done this is the great this is the greatest 70s disaster film i've seen it's the only 70s disaster film you've seen my point stands. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to compare and contrast once we're getting to some more stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, but I think we're about ready to yeah. to rate the film. Uh, what, what, what are you thinking about giving this out of 10? Out of 10, see, I'm trying to remember the ratings I gave like previous ones so I could try to stay consistent between series and seasons and whatnot. I'd say that this is probably a, I'd say 7.5. I think that this is a very well done film. Um, It does just have a couple things that, you know, it doesn't feel timeless. It does feel a couple things in here where it is just very 70s. I would more so lean that on a couple lines of dialogue and the costuming where... You can tell, like, all right, this was made in a certain era. If, yeah, it, it feels of its era. I think that's fair to yeah. say. But the story itself is very well told. It doesn't mess around. It's not something where it's trying to be anything different than what it is. It's try. It's trying to tell the story of escape of these 10 people. Some of them make it, some of them don't. But it focuses on strictly what is necessary to that, while also being able to develop the characters well enough that you feel something when they leave or feel something when they survive. So 7.5, I feel is fair for that. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, Cause I, obviously I, I, I'm fairly consistent with my ratings, but obviously it has slid a little bit over time where I've gotten a little harsher, you mm. know, since you know, when I started rating things out of 10 as a teenager, I think <laughs> you'll find that I was a bit more lenient uh, but over time, I have become more jaded, and I've become you know, a better gauge of quality because I've seen more. As movies. have we all. Uh, and I think this is the sort of thing where it may have been a bit higher back in the day, but I st- I still think it's a very good example of what it is. Um, and I think the cast, by and large, you know, you, you've got a couple of fun actors with good, good, uh, like personalities. Like I think both Hackman and Bergnine have presence like you feel them they feel like actors they feel like they're on the screen and they're helping you through this this like story by like just mm-hmm. having such a good strong presence um which is something that i don't think all actors have and i think it's something that maybe 
we've lost from movies, particularly Hollywood movies, is that we have, I don't know, more generic, like, people. <laughs> we sacrifice talents for looks in a lot of aspects. I, yeah, that, that may be fair, because it's not, I mean, Borgnine especially, like, he's not, like, a pretty boy, you know, he's a, he's a really... There t- is, if you, if you put, um, like, 20-year-old Ernest Borgnine into a casting room, I doubt he would be able to get past today's casting directors. Yeah, now it's Tom Holland. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, now, now it's like all, all of Birdman's roles be going to Tom Holland now. How sad is to be that? fair, everyone's teenage roles are going to Tom Holland right now. <laughs> uh, so, um, but I appreciate that. There's a nice range of different types of faces because they're well, at least with the men, they're not scared to cast you yeah. know more typical looking people. It, it, Hollywood's a bit sexist and is always kind of veered towards pretty for the for the women. Yeah. Uh, that is absolutely true, but um. Which is all this is to say, what was, what's my rating? I, I, I think I just kind of agree with the 7.5 <laughs> is ultimately Fair what enough. I'm going to say. <laughs> More than reasonable, that's why I said it. It's good. I, I think disaster movies inherently have a bit of a ceiling, because they're never going to be mm. just, like, high art. And I, I think similar types of film that can, like I brought up Night of the Living Dead, like they get to focus a lot more on the character and the analogy of the situation, mm. like the microcosm of society that it's exploring because they're not constantly having to survive like things that like, they get to have a bit more time to explore that side of it. Yeah. Um, and that's maybe why, I th- but I think the only way I could see a disaster film getting a 10 is if the stakes are, or if the disaster is so large, there is absolutely no way to survive where it's just all the characters have already accepted death and it's just the character study and it doesn't, amazingly that's the only way i could see but even at that point would that be a disaster movie? yeah that's what i was going to say is i think at a certain point you're almost into a different genre if you do that like mm. it's almost like the way we subcategorize this type of movie is just inherently putting a ceiling on it because if it goes mm. above that ceiling it's not one of these movies anymore it's like a theme being the best tommy wiseau film that's you're a- still going to be you're only going to be able to hit a certain point <laughs> uh but I mean, for the record, I do like disaster movies. Like I can say, I grew up watching yeah. the '90s ones, and I, you know, I, I've liked a lot of the '70s ones that I've seen. And I think this is a very entertaining movie, and I think it's a really easy movie to watch. And I would recommend it if you if you like the sound of this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's a fun time, uh, and it's almost like yeah, the the more spectacle driven we've gotten, uh, the further we've moved into just absurdity. And it's kind of nice to go back to a time when this was spectacle filmmaking. Because mm-hmm. it feels like, oh, things hadn't gotten too extreme yet, so you can kind of enjoy it for the more, you know, grounded, stunt and practical-based spectacle that it is, as opposed yeah. to, you know, walls of CG and nothing else. I mean, it does come down to there is a stunt inflation that's happened over the past 50 years, where mm-hmm. it's we, we start off with, oh, you could just crash one car off a bridge, and that'll be enough to get audiences to go, oh my god, but nowadays... You gotta take out an entire dealership before audiences even yawn. <laughs> well, you say that, but I think if you show it in a single shot where there's no fakery, oh yeah, right. No, I think I'm not. I'm not saying yeah. that the audience does it. I'm saying that studios. Think oh sure, that yeah, the yeah. audiences need that. I, I think if you if you show something in such a way where it feels real because it's in a single take where you show, and you know that was something that you know I, I didn't love Baby Driver, but I think one of the things that stuck out about that movie is that simple scenes of a car just speeding around the street felt mm. so much better than most driving scenes in other movies just because no they were going to do this and like a shot and the beat to the music and it's going to feel really exciting yeah. because of that mm-hmm. uh it's just you know it's down to the filmmaking rather than like how excessive the situation is right ultimately yeah. 
but yeah, uh, and as far as yeah, the director does, we never really spoke about the director just before mm. we get to the, the the other ranking that we have to get to is uh, yes. So uh, Ronald Neem is the director, mm-hmm. and uh, he's known for this Great Expectations from forty six and Golden Salamander and Brief Encounter. Uh, although as a producer for that rather than a director, um, so. In fact, he's actually yeah, known as a cinematographer more than anything, apparently. I was going to say, he was a cinematographer way back in early film. He was 30s and 40s. Oh, that's way so old. So he was, he was very old when he was, uh, or very experienced, I should yeah, say. Yeah, before he, he switched to directing. Yeah. Uh, he did, apparently, there was a Gambit movie in 1966. Uh, the, the earliest X-Men character to get a yep. movie, it turns Channing out. Channing Tatum, eat your heart out. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, it's just the same title. But, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, that seems to he's got a couple of notable movies that he's done. Uh but this might be his biggest one. He actually wanted to do another disaster movie a couple of years later, uh called Meteor, which we will not be doing on this show because it is actually verging into sci fi territory. So that'll be one for uh yeah. Tara and myself over on the I'm Atomic Sun experiment. The leftovers. Hey, that was the only one. That was the only one I found that was like, nah, this really belongs on a different show. Everything else was was definitely for us. But uh, that's interesting. So yeah, uh, but he wasn't directing movies for too much longer after. So he went up to the mid eighties, and then that was that yep. was his thing. Uh, and I mean, yeah, but he lived until twenty ten, so he got to retire and yeah, he got keep to, going. He got to enjoy twenty five years of retirement, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who could ask for a better better time? <laughs> in fact, he lived to a good age. What he was nineteen eleven to twenty ten. Yeah, ninety nine. <laughs> that's a that's a great run. Fantastic. <laughs> So, uh, credit to him. Uh, but, uh, cool. Uh, all right. Uh, so yeah, the other question that I ask is, does it make the cut? I mean, this one feels pretty easy to me. I think it makes the cut. It makes safely. the cut. Yeah, it makes the cut. Uh, it's not exceptional, so it's not a cut above, but it does make the cut. Uh, yep. so, uh, yeah, we, we can concur on that quite easily. Uh, all right, cool. Um, well, there you go. That is, uh, the Poseidon Adventure. So, like I said earlier, patrons uh, should have access, uh, once this goes public, to the sequel that was made in 1979 called Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, so that's up for patrons. Uh, next episode will be the Cassandra Crossing, which I've heard of, but uh, never never seen. So You've never seen the Cassandra... God, the amateur hour over here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's the one about the bus, right? No. <laughs> I believe this is a virus that spreads on a train. Okay. So interesting. Yeah. So so we'll see. Uh we'll see how that goes. But uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Um but yeah, of course let us know what you think of this uh movie of Poseidon Adventure in the comments. And uh you know, comment down below. You can like, subscribe, and ding the bell for notifications. All those things help out uh, the channel. Uh, you can rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from if you listen to the audio version. But of course, uh, patreon.com slash TV. if you want to support the show and get bonuses, you can do that over there. You get bonuses for this show, but also the other movie podcast that we do. And of course, you can hit the super thanks button on YouTube as well if you want to do a one-time thing. But uh, any and all help is appreciated, and we're super thankful for it. Uh, but this has been The Collector's Cut, and this has been our review of The Poseidon Adventure. So thank you once again for watching or listening. We always appreciate it. Keep watching movies. And... Um, this is technically coming out on New Year's Eve, Pete. Is it? It is. Did we time that by accident? I guess we did. Whoa, okay, well, uh, in that case, uh, my boat got flipped, turned upside 
down and now I'm just a reverend with a death wish on the boat to Bel Air. 